0: Hello and welcome to the Multiplanetary Society podcast, where we explore topics related to the space economy and the why and how of potentially becoming a multiplanetary species. I'm your host Timothy Reuter. Today, we are pleased to have with us our first returning guest, Alex Gilbert, who was a graduate student when we last spoke on the podcast and now is Director of Space and Planetary Regulation at XenoPower. Alex, congratulations on your career progress and
1: welcome to the show. Hi, Timothy, thanks for having me back. Very excited to chat today.
0: Yeah, so let's start with an overview of of space nuclear. What is the value that nuclear technology can bring to space exploration, science, and potentially settlement?
1: Certainly, so if you kind of take a step back and look at the, the development of the two sectors, the space age began only about 15 years after the nuclear age. We had just developed a lot of the nuclear technology in World War II. A lot of the uh, uh, rocketry advancements that happened then were then further progressed upon by the United States and Soviet Union, led to the first rocket launches and satellites. And so almost from the beginning, there was interest in using nuclear energy to support space development. And at the time, solar energy was very underdeveloped. Uh, people don't recognize, but one of the main major first markets for solar power was commercial satellites. Um, Hmm. But when you're talking about things in the 1960s, 1970s, you really didn't even have that as a well-developed option. Their technology was new and somewhat clunky. So people uh, in both the United States and Soviet Union were looking at nuclear energy um, for both civil and military purposes. So there's really kind of two types uh, that they were looking at, which are still the predominant types today. The first is radioisotope power. Um, And so those are certain types of isotopes that we produce artificially that decay very predictably. They produce small amounts of heat. And if we couple them with thermoelectrics or other technologies, they can produce electricity. Um, So these are really uh, for probes or small satellites. We also have fission power. And so that's what we usually think of when we talk about nuclear power. That's what commercial terrestrial nuclear power really is. Um, And we actually did have a number of fission projects during the cold war. Now, the U.S. only ended up launching one test fission satellite as opposed to many radioisotope powered satellites. Uh, the Soviet Union actually had about three dozen uh, fission satellites that they used for military purposes. But there's been a long development and long uh, amount of time since the Cold War. We've actually had on and off again development of space nuclear technologies, specifically fission. We continue to use radioisotope for civil exploration. So any of the um missions that you hear about that are really exciting that are going to deep space Uh, the Mm -hmm. mars rovers the new horizons mission frontier um voyager those are powered by radioisotope systems provided to nasa by the department of energy Mm -hmm. uh and then when we look at fission we really have not done a lot in actually developing fission reactors now that started changing about five years ago um in 2018 a small team at the department of energy uh, developed and actually operated uh, experimentally the first dedicated space reactor um, in decades uh, that was kilopower and that kind of kicked off this new interest in using nuclear technologies to power the new age of space exploration so um, really the, the way to think about it is that nuclear can provide three services in space then it's scalable depending if, if you want to use radioisotopes or fission it can provide heat so it keeps your spacecraft warm lets you survive cold places in space you can provide power that can scale up from a very small probe or instrument all the way up to a full architecture. And it can provide propulsion. It can do that indirectly by producing electricity and using electric propulsion. You can also do thermal propulsion, which really just think about it like a, a, um, a nuclear rocket. Um, so those are all potential applications. We're pursuing those right now. Um, but right now, the only thing that we are consistently flying that is flight proven are NASA's plutonium based radioisotope systems.
0: Right. And and so okay, so I think I, I've got a good picture from what you've said of the value of nuclear power, you know, especially once you you move beyond uh low Earth orbit and you know, cis lunar going deeper. Just it's it's harder to collect enough power from solar arrays. Um, could you say a little bit more about why nuclear propulsion can be useful? I mean, why not? You know, we we've got systems already using chemical rockets, why switch over to something new?
1: Certainly. So again, there are multiple types of nuclear propulsion, um, but the the core reason we're interested in it is because the energy density associated with nuclear in general is much higher than other sources. So the primary uh, propulsion source that we use to get to space is chemical, uh, chemical mm-hmm. rockets. And we have actually done many, many decades of development of many uh, different launch systems using chemicals. We have really maxed out that technology in terms of how much specific impulse it can provide, which is, it's a measure of efficiency of how much can your fuel be used? How much energy can you get out of it? What can you do in space? So when we're looking actually in space propulsion, we do see a development of other types of uh, power sources. Um, Fission is probably the biggest one that people are interested in. And that's because when you put it in a a nuclear thermal propulsion, which is a nuclear rocket, you actually get at least double the specific impulse of an advanced chemical engine, maybe as soon as the first of a kind. And so it's possible that you have significant um, increases in the efficiency of what you're trying to do. Your capabilities go essentially much, much further. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you get to things like nuclear electric propulsion, that actually can be four or five times and then mm-hmm. if we actually even look, uh, I think more futuristically, but not as futuristically as people might think, and we look at say fusion power, we can actually start talking about magnitudes, increases in efficiency and capability. And that matters for, I think really two reasons. Uh, one, if you are concerned about logistics, and this is I think primarily from right now a military perspective, but in the future, mm-hmm. potentially a space mining or material transport perspective, having the most efficient, capable uh, engines that you possibly can, It will reduce your travel times. It will reduce the overall amount of essentially mass used for your overall architecture. Mm -hmm. But then the other big area is for human crews. Um, When we are operating in deep space, we don't have the protection of the Earth's magnetic field to reduce uh, galactic cosmic radiation. It's a really intense radiation environment. So we actually wanna minimize astronaut time in deep space in unprotected areas. So if we wanna do a mission to Mars, uh, there are many people both within NASA and outside of NASA believe, that believe the only way that we can safely and effectively do that is actually with nuclear propulsion because it will let us shorten the trip times. It will let us get there quicker. And in many cases, it also provides us the flexibility of having a board that at some point during the mission itself, as we're on our way there, we can actually have enough fuel to get back to Earth if there's a catastrophic issue that happens. You just do not have that flexibility with chemical, uh, currently available chemical technologies
0: got it. And so, you know, I think you you've laid out very nicely what are the benefits of using nuclear technology instead of solar for powering, instead of chemical for propulsion. Um so why aren't we already doing lots of this? What's the hold up?
1: Great question. So part of it has to do with just what has happened with the space industry and Um, I don't think that people fully recognize how much the space industry has changed in the last 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of innovators like SpaceX, but many other uh, enabled entities, uh, we have essentially the beginning of a commercial space age. Now, private companies have been involved with the space sector since the beginning, but they've really been following government activities. They've been contractors to governments, Um, even the Apollo program. Yes, it was a U.S. rocket and it was but it was built by many different individual private companies that were contracted to NASA. But what we're seeing now is a shift where commercial entities are actually now starting to take the driving role of technology and capability Mm -hmm. in space. Um, So that is fundamentally different. And if you look at what that means, that's why we're seeing increases in Earth uh, services from orbit, uh, telecommunications, Earth observation. Those sectors are exploding right now with substantial benefits on Earth. We're seeing many more opportunities for deep space activities because of the lower cost of launch because of this commercialization of launch technologies. And in particular, we're focusing on the moon uh, because we can now get to the moon in a much easier way. And the U.S. is heading there, the U.S. with its Artemis program, but the broader Artemis initiative is leading countries and companies to head there. So the, the simple answer really is that other than a handful of deep space probes, we didn't really need nuclear technologies for outer space since the end of the Cold War. We didn't have that same geopolitical competition. We were largely focused on Earth orbits. We were doing some deep space exploration, but it really wasn't widespread. That is fundamentally changing. Now, first, the geopolitical element is huge. The U.S. is uh, has a reemerging competition with both Russia and China in space. All three of those countries are developing nuclear fission technologies for space, specifically for military purposes, because they're trying to gain different advantages and a potential space contest in the future. So that is driving the development in a way that we haven't seen since the Cold War. But then commercially or for NASA's purposes, if we actually want to do a lot of advanced activities on the moon. Nuclear in many ways is the best, in some cases only option for us to be able to survive the long lunar nights, to be able to operate in permanently shadowed regions, to scale up space mining infrastructure on the moon. Those are things that are actually in early stages right now, but we're gonna start seeing that ramp up really quickly in the next five years. 10 to 15 years down the line, power and heat from something like nuclear will be in significant demand. And then finally, we're also starting to see a shift beyond uh, lunar exploration to actually deep space exploration might be on the verge of getting a significant boost. Other countries are looking a lot more at going to Mars or Jupiter or the asteroid belt. We have private companies that now have missions planned to both Mars and Venus. And with that comes more demand for deep space nuclear technologies in a way that we just have not had until recently.
0: There's actually a few threads I want to pull on here, but first, something that's been a a theme, you know, through the the life of the podcast is this question of moving from sort of the government making everything happen to becoming more commercially oriented. And, you know, I, I think we see this in low earth orbit. The government is still an important customer, but there's lots of other customers and there is legitimate commercial activity that is not government focused and i guess you know do you see that happening in the next 10 years for lunar and cislunar um you know obviously there's there's commercial programs but it's still pretty much oriented around government activity for now and sort of how do you see us making that transition to from you know government as the customer to government as one customer among many. and then maybe do you see that transition happening for deep space or is that just you know cost too much and too far away to have that transition happen there?
1: Yeah, that is I think one of the fundamental questions about the future of the space industry. and again, to back up, you need to really think about this uh, from a individual actor level. It's not about whether it's government or commercial. It's always been a spectrum. It's always the government working with certain commercial entities. The government doesn't actually do a lot of building things itself. It contracts very closely, at least in the United States with the private sector. And so you essentially have, I think on one end of the spectrum, government-led missions with government-led contracting, with government-led requirements that are being executed by commercial entities. And on the very, very far end of that, you have purely commercial missions using commercially developed technologies provided commercially and regulated by a commercial regulator. And in between, you've got a very large spectrum. And the first step that we're seeing is a shift from the government driving the requirements at an engineering or capability level to letting the private sector lead that. So the government is no longer developing a technology for its own use and relying on the private sector to do that. It's rather saying, we, as NASA or Department of Defense, want to do X. This is our mission. This is our goal. Can you provide that as a service to us? And we will buy that service. Now, we don't care about the specific commercial capabilities. Uh, we do want to see like progress in your development and milestones and how your technology is moving forward. But we're not going to be making sure that you hit every single individual requirement that we've laid out because we're not laying out those requirements. We just want to buy the technology and we want it to be flexible and available when we need it. So that's a really big shift, and that's the shift that led to SpaceX and a lot of the other new space companies developing. SpaceX at first, many people had the same question: Okay, so you're going to build this private company. The only real buyer right now is the is the government. You're just going to serve the government, and so you're competing with all these incumbent launch providers. That's not a big market. Well, SpaceX has I think really blown that assumption out of the water because yes. by developing the technology, using the government as an initial anchor market. They then were able to drive down costs and open it up to many commercial actors, including their own commercial business, Starlink, which is now driving the majority of their launches. So I think if you look at lunar and cislunar space, that's exactly the model that many at NASA are pushing for right now. Not not all at NASA. NASA Mm -hmm. still really is in a weird flux between these two different models and what is preferred. But I think that that is actually probably where people are heading right now, that we are going to have... Commercial uh, uh, development, uh, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, CLIPS, uh program is really leading to that kind of model of government uh, missions provided with commercial services. Developing all those technologies, those Clips providers, those one that, ones that have contracts right now that are trying to land in the next year, year or two, uh, they're already looking for purely commercial customers. And I think the big question um, will be, who are those customers now? The weird yes. thing is those customers might actually not be quote unquote commercial, they might be foreign governments. And that's actually something that we've now seen with SpaceX having uh, its uh, crew services. It's now actually has private missions that are sending foreign astronauts that are not participants in the ISS to the ISS. And that is really huge for expanding space access globally. I expect many of these commercial providers in the US will actually start serving foreign government missions to the moon, we're already starting to see that happening. But then the big question will be, can we unlock lunar water? Water, as we talked about on uh, the first time I was on this podcast, is really probably the first space resource. It can unlock mm-hmm. a much broader cislunar economy, can benefit Earth orbit, and we believe there are significant resources there. And that's where a lot of commercial interest, I think, could flow to the moon if the services to transport and arrive safely there are developed.
0: Yeah. And so what are the existing programs? So that there is an ecosystem of programs in the United States that is looking to accelerate all this. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what's the activity that is currently going on and maybe some of the activity that you think, you know, needs to receive more investment?
1: Yeah, so one of the points that I really try and emphasize right now, because it's really not appreciated fully within the space sector, it's definitely not appreciated outside of the space sector, is that we have organized in a really surprising, shocking manner the most coordinated national and international space mission since at least their national space station and probably since Apollo. The U.S. right now is leading what I'm calling the Artemis initiative to go back to the moon. Now this is different mm-hmm. from the Artemis program. The Artemis mm-hmm. program is part of the Artemis initiative and it's focused specifically on the human crew portion returning mm-hmm. astronauts to the moon. But the Artemis, Artemis initiative is a much broader umbrella includes many different elements, includes all the directorates at NASA, which is really how they spend a lot of their funds and how they direct their activities. There's lunar science that uh, is definitely involved. There's a lot of robotic interest. There's all sorts of uh, commercial entities that are participating either directly or indirectly. They're developing capabilities. The Eclipse program is by far, I think the flagship kind of lunar uh, program right now, other than crew that you can point to as NASA really going to the private sector. Um, the human landing system as part of the Artemis program itself is obviously a really big one that we're seeing a lot of development towards. Um, but more broadly, we're also seeing international participation. Um, the Artemis Accords now, I think, have 25 si- signatories. Um, mm-hmm. That is a really significant amount of uh, joint international interest in shared principles for lunar governance. So there, there is a lot that's happening right now. Um, I think there are really, from my perspective, I think there's two big issues. One, will this funding level be sustained? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, That is something that there's a lot of talk right now on Capitol Hill about reducing budgets. Um, I would hope that the geopolitical competition with China to go back to the moon will help maintain that, but that is an open question. And secondly, to kind of be a little bit more specific on uh, the nuclear side of things, um, I'm not sure that we are currently in the developing the right mix of private capabilities and public demand for nuclear to make sure that we have nuclear technologies on the moon for the widespread of Artemis initiatives. Um, So there is some interest in some programs at NASA. Um, Now, NASA had two big fission programs. It had a nuclear propulsion program and the fission surface power program. Mm -hmm. The nuclear propulsion program has now been folded into DARPA's nuclear propulsion program. So one that does make a nuclear rocket more likely to happen, but it's unlikely to be a rocket designed for anything lunar, probably even anything really Mars focused. So it's not clear that that's going to be helpful for lunar goals. Fission surface power is to develop a reactor for use on uh, the lunar surface. And it's promising, but it's still in very early phases. And frankly, the program structure itself, it is not a commercial first program. It is a program to build one reactor for NASA, and have the private sector work in that traditional contractor-like role, and then on the radioisotope side, an area that Xeno is actively working on, we have there's other companies, um, some international interest as well. We are starting to see a lot more development there and a lot more interest, and we probably would be, I think the initial bridgehead for nuclear capabilities on the moon. But a lot of that, frankly, is being led by the private sector. That's something that, um, for a number of reasons, is not really folded into any of the Artemis initiatives right now. We we do think there's going to be a number of uh, activities that could start calling for those capabilities in the future. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's a space nuclear strategy for the moon right now. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly not one that I think reflects on the best practices of how new space was able to take off, of really combining government demand with commercial capabilities, with public-private partnerships, vision service power, I just don't think is there yet. And it definitely does it is not on track to have sufficient funding to do what it wants to do.
0: Right. And, and how does Draco, the DARPA program fit into all of this? Obviously, you know it has some slightly different objectives that, that you might address, but I know that's something that's gotten a lot of attention in the, the space nuclear community.
1: Yeah, so Draco, um, I forget the full acronym, but the, the C-O at the end is for CisLunar Operations. And so mm-hmm. the idea there really is that DARPA, one, just developing any sort of nuclear rocket in general is revolutionary. There's never been one that has been launched before and actually flown. We only ground tested. So if we can get it to work at all, that would be great. Um, but it also is intentionally, I think, with a long term vision that if the moon does become this area of active economic development, it also could become an area of geopolitical or strategic competition, and the US needs capabilities uh, for cislunar space and so Draco, I think the idea would be, would be really focused on all of cislunar space so earth, earth orbits, uh, and the moon itself, from a military perspective. So I think that that capability from a military perspective, it makes sense. I don't know if it really helps a lot with cis lunar commercialization. Um, mm-hmm. You don't really need to have nuclear propulsion, especially for this early stage of lunar development. But I do think one area that it has been really helpful, and we're actually seeing it very active, is it is a one of the first technologies to go through the new space nuclear launch approval process um, mm-hmm. that was reformed recently by NSPM twenty. It's the first one of the first times that we've done the launch approval in the US for uh, something other than a plutonium NASA RTG. And so that's a really big deal. First of all, just the fission reactor in general, you're dealing with all sorts of other safety considerations, launch approval considerations, um, but it's at least a tier two or tier three mission under NSPM 20 meaning it has to go through the Interagency Nuclear Safety Review Board. It's trialing out all of those processes. And I think actually the most enduring legacy of Draco from, say, a cislunar science or commerce perspective actually might be that it helps lay the regulatory foundation for expanded space nuclear activities in general, including on the moon.
0: That That's the perfect transition to what I wanted to talk about next, uh, which is... What are the policy challenges we need to address both you know, domestically in the U.S. and potentially internationally to make better use of these technologies?
1: Yeah, so there, internationally, there is no such thing as space nuclear law. Um, it exists from a nation state perspective as essentially two distinct elements of international law, space law and nuclear law. Space law is relatively undeveloped, there's only a handful of treaties, there's no equivalent to the Air National Atomic Ener- Energy Agency. Um, it really is a state to state kind of mechanism um, that is not well adapted, I think, to handling the new commercial space age. Nuclear law, on the other hand, is very developed. It is really mm-hmm. focused on commercial and peaceful use of technology, governed and overseen by nation states, primarily to protect against uh, safety and proliferation concerns but it is focused exclusively terrestrially. So from an international level there's really no hard law instruments. There's a couple Isn't of there thoughts,
0: something about you can't put nuclear weapons in space and what does a nuclear weapon in space mean? That that's a question I've heard raised sometimes.
1: Yeah, that that's a good one. So that there's a provision in the outer space tree that prohibits weapons of mass destruction which clearly would include nuclear weapons. Um, Any of the technologies that you'd be talking about for fission or radioisotope don't fall into that categorization. There's no, I think, uh, international legal concern there. There might be some questions about, hey, yes, we recognize that that is true, that that technology does not fit a weapons description, but we still want to have some inspection rights. The outer space treaty does have that ability to inspect things in space. And so there could be some things to just kind of reduce any concerns there. Um, I I think one of the bigger things actually might be if you ever have a country that is not a nuclear weapons state and so not one of the five recognized nuclear uh, nuclear weapons states, um, there actually might be questions about the IAEA need to have inspectors for any sort of space reactor. Mm -hmm. Um, just to make sure that nothing uh, is uh, untoward on the proliferation level. So yeah, that's not really a significant restriction. Um, The primary restrictions are really in soft law. And even then they're soft law, um, which means that they're not very binding. Um, So when we get to kind of national law, that's where a lot of this is happening. And this is also where we're kind of seeing a transition now. First, the United States has the only established regulatory system for launch approval, of either government or commercial uh, space nuclear systems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now that is because we've been doing this for many years. It's also just because our uh, space sector is different than Russia or China, which just launch it under traditional government authorities. Um, and so we've actually significantly revised the general launch approval framework, specifically as it relates to launch safety, um, with National Security Presidential Memorandum Twenty it is a very mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, forward-looking document. It is a performance-based regulatory system. Um, It has several different tiers of review. It's designed to support many different types of new technologies. So it's not technology specific. Um, And it is binding on NASA. It's binding on the Department of Defense. They're working to implement it now. It is not necessarily binding on the Federal Aviation Administration, which is responsible for commercial space uh, safety uh, launch Mm -hmm. space safety for launches, including for nuclear. So, there's actually not a fully clear developed regulatory system on the commercial side for a commercial space nuclear launch. But the agency clearly has the authority and by being able to rely through the interagency processes on NASA, on DOD, on the Department of Energy, um, at least I believe that they are well suited to handle early activities with their regulatory system. Now, that said, there are some other uh, issues, I think, especially if you start looking at purely commercial missions, if you look in particular at say fission systems, um, right now, once you are done with your FA uh, regulated launch and you get into space, if you're a purely commercial mission, um, if you're going to deep space and you're not communicating back with earth, you don't have a regulator. Uh, No one is regulating (laughs) that area, and that is something that is really weird to say if you're in the nuclear energy world. Nuclear is uh, heavily regulated for a number of good reasons, and so actually having a regulatory vacuum is really strange, but actually might pose a significant launch authorization barrier. Um, If you're trying to launch, say, a nuclear reactor to the moon for purely commercial purposes where there's no NASA or Defense Department involvement, Um, FAA might not approve your launch request because it's clear that no one will be regulating you once you're in space. So this is what we call the mission authorization problem. Um, This is a major issue for broad space regulation right now, not just space nuclear, Mm -hmm. any of the new space activities. And there's been a number of proposals for how to address it, but right now there, it doesn't seem like anything really has momentum. It is a pretty significant gap that could start putting the brakes on both the new space sector generally and space nuclear specifically.
0: Is this something that the engaged companies are focusing on a lot, or or is policy sort of they they have so many other things before they get to the policy challenges that it's not a um, big thing in their
1: mind. So I, I will say that I think the most of the new space sector understands this. Um, some of the initial mm-hmm. companies that started pushing on this were the first asteroid mining companies. Um, they yes. have both since uh, gone under or been acquired, um, but they were starting to push on this question specifically. They got some legislation passed, but there have been people in the new space industry asking for a mission authorization framework for a decade now. Um, mm-hmm. All of the major space players really do understand that. I think one big area that's an exception, which is a problem, uh, is space nuclear. Um, so we, Zeno Power, myself, have been going to a lot of these uh, government uh, hearings and meetings and discussions on this specific question we had talking with our space sector counterparts. Um, we very rarely see any other space nuclear company. There's maybe one or two other ones that will uh, show up for these things. And that's a pretty significant gap. Um, I think that, in general the space nuclear sector right now um, has two major issues which are closely related um Mm -hmm. first i think they are still stuck in the very traditional government contracting type model um, Mm -hmm. where they're really looking to the government to provide them requirements to provide them what they need to do to give them the contracts Um, they're not really looking at developing a capability that they can sell um, that is driven by their own needs not necessarily just by a single government contract so that's a big problem and the second part of that is because they're so focused just on that government driven model, um, they don't they're not really looking at those other type of policy considerations. So even if they can build the fission surface power reactor that NASA is asking for, they're not putting in, I think, any of the necessary regulatory or policy legwork so they can then sell that reactor commercially. They're kind of uh, shoehorning themselves in just to be being able, being able to provide that reactor to NASA itself. And that's a pretty significant limitation. And that's something that at least us at Xeno, we're really trying to change. We really wanna to go towards that that kind of SpaceX model of, hey, the government has very clear demands for our, our radio ISO technology. Um, they're an anchor customer, but we wanna provide that commercially because that allows us to be faster. It allows us to also provide services to other commercial entities once we have met that initial technological hurdle.
0: And that brings me to the economics of this sector. So, I mean, I'd love to hear thoughts on the economics of space nuclear and how does it compare in cost to other options? Are there pathways for significantly decreasing the cost like we've seen for launch over the past decade? Yeah. So
1: one of the big challenges of nuclear companies becoming new space-like companies is unlike at least the first generation new space uh launch vehicle companies we can't just go and blow things up and experiment <laughs>
0: uh, that is no things... spacex style grand yeah. explosions in public
1: yeah that, that's something that like they have been able to iterate relatively rapidly because they figure out what parts are not performing well by blowing things up um, we really can't do that. The, the nuclear industry, I think, operates from the measure 10 times, cut once, and then measure three more times uh, kind of philosophy. Uh, and so we, I think, need to look at the other lessons learned from the new space uh, actors and really trying to figure out how to incorporate them. We're n- Space nuclear is a second generation new space technology. There's a number of other second generation New space technologies. And so some ways we have to reprofessionalize certain things. We have to yeah. do things, uh, I think in a lot more regulated or uh, very uh, sequential manner. Um, so I, I think that that is definitely uh, one of the things that we need to work on and how to change more moving forward. Um, but I think more broadly, the space nuclear sector, uh, I think needs to start working on what its specific value proposition is. And so yeah. I think to your question of, well, what are the costs or how do the costs compare to competitors? That's actually, I don't think, quite the right question. For okay. If you're really looking at nuclear capabilities in space, we really don't have a lot of competitors. Um, solar or chemical, yes, they might be alternatives for certain applications. But if you're talking about something like surviving a lunar night, um, the, the moon, you have a 14 day long night where things get to very cold temperatures, 100 degrees Kelvin or less. That kills spacecraft, and there are no real good alternatives right now. Now, there's some ideas about using batteries or thermal reservoirs that might get you through a lunar night or two. If you want a rover to survive on the surface of the moon for five years, there's no other technology besides radioisotopes. It's an enabling technology. If you're looking at the the permanently shadowed regions where the water is, it's the same thing. Um, There just are not clear alternatives there. Or if you're looking at something like setting up a large space mine, Um, Yes, you could potentially use a very large solar field, solar reflectors and all that. That starts getting really complex and you start having a very large system, which is hard to operate in the harsh conditions on the moon, especially with all the regular dust. A reactor can solve that directly. But then if you start getting to deeper space, um, if you look at Mars as an example, and uh, I've looked at this pretty extensively, solar is not great on Mars. Mars is much further out. Um, it does not have the same type of inclination, despite like Earth, as a much longer duration around the sun. It's a really poor resource if you're anywhere at the mid latitudes or above, especially if you wanna go be near the polar ice caps because there's water or other sources there. Um, nuclear really probably is the technology of choice on Mars. And then anything beyond the asteroid belt or uh, even Jupiter, it is very difficult to do anything other than nuclear at that point. Um, And so being able to just really describe and highlight and uh, make the case for why space nuclear is an enabling technology, that is something that I think the sector is just starting to develop those narratives, but it's really still very internal. It's not broadly known that If you think space nuclear, don't think about competition, don't think about alternatives, those matter. It's about enabling new capabilities or things that we will otherwise not be able to do scientifically, commercially, or militarily.
0: Right, so let let me just push you a little bit on this. So I, I understand what you're saying. It's a different capability set. You're simply not going to replace what you can do with nuclear with solar once you get, you know away from you know closer to the sun um but it also affects right how much say science we can afford so if we're going to go to Enceladus and discover life there and you know we just heard that there's some new ingredients that make it seem more likely which something I found very exciting um we're going to have to use nuclear to to take that step But at the same time, I think there's a lot of concern that it's cost prohibitive, right? So, you know, on the one hand, there's nothing to replace it, but the amount of it you can buy is very much going to be driven by the price. And so do you think there's a way to, yeah, to drive down that price? And actually, I'll I'll work that into sort of the, the next question I had on the list a bit, which is you know right now the creation of nuclear fuel takes place at the national laboratories run by the Department of Energy. And, and there is a very defined ecosystem of how you can engage with this. So how much of a bottleneck is the current configuration for the advancement of these technologies and how much does it add to the cost?
1: Yeah, so... Again, not to push back too hard, but cost is actually not the question here right now. Um, Cost doesn't matter. And here's why. You cannot buy space nuclear at any price right now. There is literally one established flight capable uh, technology and that's the plutonium systems. Those are dedicated exclusively for NASA. And frankly, there's not enough plutonium. So it really is for NASA's most important flagship missions even if you're a NASA PI, many cases, nuclear is not available at any price. Uh, a joke I heard in the scale, which I think is appropriate, is that Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, they can buy anything they want. They can't buy a plutonium RTG. That is true for right now for other yeah. types of RTGs. Xeno is working to change that as well as some other entities. Uh, and that is, is also true as well for fission technologies. So, First of all, it is going to cost a lot for the first of a kind units because we have to do like any new technology, all of that non-recurring engineering, develop all of that supply chain for the first time. The first systems will definitely be much more expensive. And that is, I think, why that government led contracting system is not set up to establish, I think, the space nuclear future that many of us want because if you can only sell one or two reactors to the government every decade for their space applications that is not sufficient to raise private capital on that is not sufficient to build up the supply chain that doesn't let you get past non-recurring engineering costs it doesn't let you establish a streamlined regulatory system or launch approval process what we need to do is essentially recognize that we need to establish the first technologies find the first customers and then use that to drive the cost curve down. And I will say that just from my own perspective at, at looking at nuclear technologies on earth and other sectors, once you have that supply chain, once you have developed that fuel source, once you have gotten past the initial regulatory approval and can start doing end of a kind things, those costs come down very rapidly. And that is something that uh, we're definitely looking at um, at Xeno. At and that's one of the things I think is really distinguishing us Our vision, what we really see for the future, we want everyone to have not just a radioisotope option, but a radioisotope option that they can afford. We think that every single mission going to the moon should seriously be able to consider or have a radioisotope heater so it can survive a lunar night. And if you get to that science return question, which is important, there's only so many science dollars. If we can increase the amount of science done for all of the other investment that is a huge return. So if you send an experiment to the moon right now, it can survive for 14 days. If we can put a radioisotope heater on that and it survives for 5 years, that's more than 100 times the science return. Yeah. And almost at any cost, you can justify that, but we're really working to make sure that it is affordable like other uh large components with a spacecraft.
0: So just to make sure I'm I'm hearing you correctly, you're what I think you're saying is Look for, for most of these nuclear technologies, it's just too early to start talking about transforming cost curves. They have to have a lot more invention and engineering to get the first of the kind. And then we can think about these other things. And then for RD, RTG or sort of the, the radioisotope battery style stuff, actually, it's already st- the economics are st- starting to work out but for most of the ecosystem it's just too early
1: yeah but what i would say is actually um this is where it's important to recognize that nuclear is not just about space um and so yeah. in many ways the reason that nasa can even do fission surface power or that darpa and nasa can do draco is because we're actually seeing a lot of terrestrial innovation in the nuclear sector and yeah. so from a timing perspective what this actually might mean is Yes, the development of non-recurring engineering for your first reactor is still gonna be a challenge for outer space, but you actually might have already built the fuel supply chain because you're building terrestrial reactors. And that's actually what a lot of these companies are doing. Their space reactors are based on their fuel that they're already doing terrestrially. And so from kind of a timing perspective, I think a lot of these companies really see space um, either as a complement um, or as something that they can actually use to expand the demand and justify the terrestrial investments. So I, I do think that there is some of that there right now, um, but again, it, it is still early phases, and I, And I, it's actually something that I have some problems with, I think the way that the fission companies are approaching this right now, is some of the companies I think have the right motivation for how they're thinking about space, they're really thinking about doing many reactors. Other companies I think are just focused on can we get the Draco contract? Can we then build that Draco reactor? Right. And look, that's a lot of money. If you actually do something like a Draco reactor, it's probably going to be anywhere from 500 million to billion. That's a billion dollars. That's that's like a company making amount of money, but that might be your only contract. And so I, I think that part of it is a a pure technology and cost curve kind of focused um, execution play. But part of it too is just kind of, there needs to be a mind shift that if we're doing space nuclear, um, I wanna do it because I see this very expansive vision of space activities. I think a lot of other companies might just yeah. see that there's some government a- uh, funding in this area.
0: Yeah. So let's actually now dive a bit more into your company. Tell, tell us, uh, a bit about what Zeno Power is doing and how you're looking to advance this ecosystem.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, can only share so much right now, but uh, we did we were able to just announce last month uh, our first major government contract. So congratulations! Uh, yes. uh, and it is a a commercial space style government contract. We're developing a commercial capability for the Space Force. Um, we are developing a a uh, radioisotope power system and RTG to power a satellite. Um, and that is actually something that it is not a development project. We're actually contracted to build the satellite itself. So this involves actual radiological materials. Um, and we really see this as the, the first major step towards making space nuclear reality. There've been so many projects throughout the last several decades that have just been funding, 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 and really net led to nothing other than essentially paper designs So we're actually building this right now. Um, And so looking at uh, serving Space Force needs, uh, developing this new technology for them. Um, What we are doing is looking at strontium 90, um, which is an alternative isotope to plutonium. It is much more available as one of the primary constituents of nuclear waste. Um, So we actually uh, and I think a a good way to show how you can't really uh, know how technology develops. If we're successful we'll be uh, both solving for space power needs but also addressing Mm -hmm. nuclear waste challenges um so we're working on that building that first project right now but we're also looking more broadly at serving customers on the moon uh serving customers in deep space um, we don't compete with plutonium because, again, we're, we're just, it's not the same type of technology. Plutonium is really for those flagship style missions. We're mm-hmm. really kind of optimized for the, uh, the terrestrial and cislunar area out to probably about Mars, maybe Jupiter, just because of the half-life and characteristics of the isotope itself. So we, we've got this initial project, and the one thing that I will say that I really appreciate about the company, um, I joined very early. I was the sixth uh, full-time person, including the co-founders, to be there. And that's because they wanted to prioritize getting to orbit and getting to activities um and they knew that regulation was going to be important so we've actually started our regulatory work already we're pretty far ahead um we actually uh, started talking with faa and we have submitted a payload review which is the mechanism to get launch approval for a commercial system and our application was accepted and what that means is that it is accepted for review the uh, application is now being reviewed by the federal aviation administration For launch safety, and so we have to do a lot of work over the next eighteen to twenty-four months for that application. We're doing intense safety analysis. Um, We're doing we're building a lot of the precedent, frankly, that NASA has set here. Um, And we will we're targeting right now to actually have the approval done around the same time that we have the spacecraft built in twenty twenty-five. That's lightning fast in nuclear world. That's lightning fast in space nuclear world. And what we're hoping is that then the latter half of this decade we can really start expanding upon. All that work in regulatory, all that work in supply chain development and our initial technologies so that we can widely offer to any space customers a radioisotope solution.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and as a, a, a final question, you and I were recently at the Nuclear Emerging Technology for Space meeting in Idaho Falls. What were your key takeaways from that?
1: That's a good question. So one, there's a lot of interest and excitement in the field right now it was Mm -hmm. i think the biggest uh so this is essentially the the annual us-based space nuclear conference it was the biggest one ever um and that's especially surprising because it was in idaho falls which is very difficult to get to so (laughs) people really made the effort
0: i can Um, vouch for that yes
1: so it it does show that there's a lot of interest um i do think some of my observations i've i've shared with you i think that there is this divide between a commercial approach versus a government contracting approach Mm -hmm. Um, I really do worry that we essentially had three major space nuclear projects, the um, DARPA propulsion, NASA propulsion and NASA fission. Two of those have merged together and there's about nine different project teams serving those three projects for the first round. If those down select, we only will end up with two fission projects. And I think that, that could put a lot of pressure on the sector. And I, I, I do worry about whether that will allow us to develop the capabilities that we need. The other thing I thought was just really interesting about it is so, that. Two things. First, um, on the radio isotope side, I think there's a lot of excitement um, because there's a lot of capabilities coming. So you have Xenopower. Um, we were able to actually announce at the conference um, this uh, first project for Space Force. You had Ultra Safe Nuclear Corporation, Tech. Um, Chris Morrison there, uh, was. we were really excited to see that he had quite a few number of projects for NASA that were really in the early stages, that were really trying to think transformatively about how can we use alternative radio isotopes? What, are the, what does that mean for new NASA mission sets? Um, the the UK Americium program has developed uh, further, and they're actually looking at a flight opportunity with NASA. Which again, they're going to NASA because we have this established launch approval uh, regulatory system that no one else does. But at the same time, that's really encouraging to actually see that that's coming to fruition. The, the Koreans had um, attested their ETG, which is an electrically heated uh, version of an RTG, in space. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these things are really coming together on the radio isotope side that I think are promising. The final thing, which um I I think I find both concerning and opportunity. You find that the nuclear sector tends to talk to itself, and you find that the space sector tends to talk to itself. And at the Space Nuclear Conference, you'd hope that there would be both of them and they'd be talking together, and I didn't think that was the case. Um, There were a couple of people there that were firmly on the space side, like NASA and Space Force sent their people. There were a couple of private new space companies that were really new space first, and they were starting to look at nuclear technologies or they have small projects there but this was really a nuclear first conference. And I think that if we really wanna try and get to uh, the, the future that we, at least I see for space nuclear, we need to figure out how to get the two sectors to talk to each other more closely. Um, I, I also work on the space side and I work on uh, uh, space resources, um, studying kind of what's happening there, how we enable the policy and the technology there. When I talk to space resources engineers all the time, they're like, oh yeah, nuclear is the solution. We need nuclear for this. If we look at like surviving the lunar night, we need radioisotopes or we need fission reactors for our processing facilities. And I don't know if they're going to be ready in time. Like, I, I just don't think the sectors fully understand what the demand is on one side, what the yeah. supply is on each other. Um, and so that was one of my big takeaways from actually being in the conference is that, yes, we've got the Space Nuclear Conference, but it's really the nuclear conference about space. And we need to substantially change that. We need the sectors to have a much better interplay um, if we're to be able to develop the technologies the new space uh, era needs.
0: Well, Alex. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show again. Of course, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again to Alex Gilbert for joining the Multiplanetary Society podcast. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you like this content, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to ensure you don't miss an episode and leave a review to help other people find it. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, please feel free to email us at multiplanetarysociety all one word with no dashes, at gmail.com.